listeners, welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast and this is podcast number 20. I'm Joel and this podcast is all about what does it take to be an extraordinary coach and I'm going to be speaking with experts and thought leaders on that topic. For some time now I've been fascinated about leadership work with horses. Uh, What makes this work powerful and what lessons can we take from doing that kind of work with horses into our one-on-one coaching. So I was super excited when someone recommended the work of Kelly Wendorf to me. Kelly is a gifted horsewoman and she's developed the Equus Experience, which is a horse-assisted learning process. And she created that out of her frustrations with a lot of conventional learning methodologies. And she now works with leaders and entrepreneurs and executives from all over the US and the world using this approach. Just seeing a video of Kelly working with a client and a horse in the arena had a tangible impact on my nervous system. So we're going to explore today, why does this work? What makes it so powerful? Why are horses powerful teachers? And how can we as coaches take lessons from what horses bring to their clients and how can we develop similar qualities within ourselves? So what lessons can we take from horses that we can bring into our one-on-one coaching with our clients? And then also we go into a much wider ranging conversation around what makes for transformational coaching and the changing concerns that leaders and executives and CEOs come into her organization with, she's really seeing there's been a sea change in the kinds of concerns and cares that these people have as they come into her work, which gives her hope for the future. So we'll explore that too. So one last thing, if you are inspired by this podcast, you can find more at coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. And then on the individual pages there, you'll find a share button. I'd just love to get this work out to as many coaches as possible. I would really appreciate that. That would make me happy. So let's dive straight in. So Kelly, yeah, let's just continue from here. Uh, I'm super excited to be speaking with you today on this podcast and um, for a number of reasons. But we're going to be speaking today about the work you do with Equus. You're working with leadership and with horses, and I have been watching some of the videos that you uh, have on your site and stuff, and it just really lit me up. Tell me a bit about the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Joel. And I'm just aware of how excited I am to be on this on this uh, conversation with you. Um, well, I think I think the best way to introduce the work is to um, is to describe sort of you know, where it came from and what uh, started um, some of the threads that, that are now Equus. Um, I, have, um, I have sort of three tracks in my life. Um, one is um, as a horsewoman, I've just, I've always been, I was just always that nature girl, you know, you just couldn't get me away from the mountains or animals and, and specifically horses. Um, and so there was a track in my life where I just really spent a lot of time in that world, in the equestrian world, and <clears throat> was a trainer and a dressage rider and, and kind of did all that and was an educator and taught people to ride and trained horses. Um, and that, that sort of faded into the background um, after I felt an incongruence with that world, um, a world of, you know, where people you know, love their animals, but the animals suffer um, at the hands of, you know, great ambition and misunderstanding. So, so I kind of let that world quietly die (laughs) um, in my, in my late twenties. And, um, and I I kept horses for my own um, interest, but just sort of stayed away from the equestrian world. Um, And and the second track was professionally, um, I, I edited and, and uh, founded a magazine in Australia called Kindred. And uh, the, the premise of the magazine was the question of how do we raise a just and sustainable and compassionate society, which is a, a very big question. <laughs> um, 
And, and it, that question was especially um, important to me at the time because I was a new mother. And here I had these two amazing little beings that I was now responsible for shaping and raising in a, in a culture that was, you know, largely informed by separation and fear. And so, um, and so because that question was set so important to me, how, how was I going to raise two compassionate, uh, empathetic, uh, just, and, 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 and uh, confident people in this, in this world? Um, I decided I might as well, I'm sure that well, there were other people with that question as well. So, um, so Kindred was born and, um, and we looked at the, we looked at that question from the angle of, you know, everything from culture to education, to parenting, to, um, to neurobiology, to, um, you know, all, everything that contributes to what we call life in its form and, and I think that was sort of the nascent stages for me of, of my coaching business, because um, I think we all aspire um, in various ways to, to become um, the people that we sense we can be. And, um, you know, there are ideas we have about whether we can or cannot do that. But my interest is in what are the conditions that just liberate that possibility and so um, I sort of geeked out <clears throat> on neuroscience for 10 years. Um, that was what really took my, my attention. Um, and the neuroscience basically says in a nutshell that we are wired for love and connection. Um, we are wired to understand that we are one with all things and that we are infinite. And that that's not something we learn. It's something we come into this world with. And then we we are born and then culture shapes us into something smaller. Um, so that intrigued me a lot. So if we already have the blueprint in us, then what ignites that blueprint? Um, and so that led me to the third track, which was my spiritual life. Um, my father is an archeologist and uh, we spent, uh, I spent my childhood with indigenous populations um, and just in that kind of ancient, um, all those ancient places that archaeologists go, um, which gave me a, a different kind of um, perspective of, you know, this human life. Um, not, just, uh, not just not an American perspective, but also a more ancient perspective. And um, a few of my teachers later in adulthood were, um, different indigenous people and elders from around the world. Um, my most influential was a, a gentleman named Uncle Bob Randall, who was the listed custodial elder of Uluru in Australia. And um, I learned from him that that blueprint of connection is, is just the very fabric of their lives. It's not something that's questioned. They don't have a spiritual life <laughs> there's there's no way to name it spiritual because everything is that and and so kind of braiding the three um the neuroscience the horsemanship and these indigenous understandings became my big passion and so quite serendipitously i was um happened to be working with one of my horses at a at a lodge where i kept her and um she, she, I was doing some groundwork with her and, and the general manager of the lodge came around and he just sort of watched me for a second. And then he said, uh, in a really kind of casual way, he said, come here for a second. And he said, I, I want you to, um, I want you to lead a workshop on, um, communication to my sales staff. And I was sort of really, and he said, yep, yeah, nope, just, I don't know, something, there's just something happening here with the horse and you just lead a workshop. <laughs> So um, all I knew was to say yes, and I didn't really know what I was stepping into um, at all. And, um, and I just, you know, we made the, the space available and, and 10 people showed up and, and the horses, lo and behold, created conditions for people to see an aspect of themselves that could not happen in a conversation between two human beings just wasn't possible. And um, after an hour, people on the sales team walked away with a sense of, um, 
uh, a better perspective on their self-doubts, um, uh, a knowing in themselves about what was possible for them and how to access that knowing. And um, it was almost like their whole inner compass was sort of shifted slightly to something that was much more in alignment with who they really were. That's the best way to put it. So that was the birth of Equus, which is, you know, really our business is a coaching. We're a coaching platform and we work all over the world with my partner, Scott Strawn and I, um, who's co-founder of Equus with me. We, we work all over the world with people, but we also put them in, in, in the presence of horses when possible. Um, so when people come here and they have a chance to work with our horses, it's really game changing. And the reason for that is because it's not a sentimental thing like, oh, horses are so wonderful and we love horses. That, that in fact, was totally not why we brought them in, as you heard from my story previous. But their nervous system is so large that it positively overwhelms our nervous system. And from a neurobiological point of view, um, our nervous systems, you know, are as people, but also all beings, all like animals and creatures. And even we're looking at trees now and plants, but they're designed to both <clears throat> attune to one another and to influence one another um, without words. And the, you know, we can influence one another in a negative way or we can influence one another in a positive way. And the horses are aligned with presence that just, that's just the deal. It's, um, they're not capable of thinking past and future, but it's a kind of presence that's deeply attuned to their surroundings because as animals of prey, they have to really feel not just what's out there, but what's the intention of what's out there. So, you know, that sensibility of, of this refined sensitivity. And so they tune into human beings and they, they reflect back what they're sensing in that person, um, but not the story of that person. So there's this whole kind of cowboy mythology, like don't let a horse know you're afraid because then he'll take advantage of you. But actually, that's not the deal. Horses don't mind your fear. That's, they don't mind anything that's happening for you. What they're tuning into is who you are, who you are really. And so what can make a horse feel unsettled is not if you feel afraid, but if you're, at, if you're somehow at odds with your fear, if you don't like your fear, if you think you shouldn't be afraid, if you have judgment of your fear, that feels like incongruence to them. And that incongruence is what they're attuned to, to feeling. So, um, so they, they're sort of truth tellers. So they both reflect back where people are really at. But then in addition to that, they influence people towards a way of being that is <clears throat> in alignment with presence and what's really happening and who they really are. Because from a horse point of view, it doesn't work for them to be surrounded by anybody, horse or human, who isn't in presence. Um, if you're not in presence, then you're not a really great herb member because you're not paying attention. So, so their bodies sort of teach our bodies how to be truly present. Um, and, and that is the game changer, um, and that's where then the coaching really takes off because it sets people in a, um, an optimal place to, to see and to observe and to shift in places that maybe intellectually they knew they wanted to shift, but they didn't know how to change the neurochemistry for that actually to happen. So I realize I've said a lot, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was um, listening uh, very closely to what you were saying there. It's a lovely story. And um, um, I'd love to ask you in a moment about why that presence is so important. And, and this, what I love about it is that they're getting immediate feedback. These people, these leaders who are stepping into relationship with these horses in this way. Could you paint a picture of like what you often see when somebody somebody steps into, you know, the, the arena with the horse in that way. Like. Mm. Um, so we, 
we've evolved now to have um, several horses. So people step into the arena um, with a herd, a small herd of uh, six horses and a donkey. Um, and by the way, the arena has a gate that uh, goes into the paddock where the horses live. And that's deliberate so that the horses can opt out if they want to. And the reason I bring that up is because, um, you know how it is. If you're forced to do something, your true gifts can't come forward. We have a gate and sometimes the horses will stand at the gate indicating this is not my day or this is not my job or that's not my person. Very rarely though. Um, so people enter the arena it can be all kinds of ways. And, and the first phase of, of being with the horses is really kind of in the raw. We don't give a lot of instruction about how to be because we really want to see, as you say, what shows up. Um, that's really important um, to sort of see what, what shows up, just what's the natural inclination of people. And we have a saying, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. So, you know, how I am on a phone call is, really how I pay my bills. I mean, it's all, it, you just show up as who you are at, at any moment. So, so this is just such a precious moment to see how people, how they enter the arena. We have everything from obviously a lot of just the, the normal sort of let me reach and go and pet the horses and let me talk to the horses and, or let me see if I can find some grass and kind of, pull it out of the ground at the corner of the arena and then feed it to the horse. Or some people give a lot of space, but this is where everything shows up. People might have a story. They don't like me or will they like me or, or I need to make the horse feel better or I want the horse to feel safe. So we see a lot of the, um, let's just say the facades that show up, the learned behaviors. Um, I have to do something in order to be liked that kind of thing. Mm. I have to pet, right? So how does that translate into their human world? How do they reach out and pet so to be liked, you know, metaphorically speaking? Um, so we see a lot of those covering behaviors. So that's part of what we see. But the horses right away are tuning into who, who they really are. And so we also get a chance to see wow, you know, in spite of their efforting, in spite of their trying too hard or their, their shyness or their fear, or the horse is showing that, in fact, this person is very peaceful or has a presence that is very captivating or very intriguing or, or very magnetic. Um, but that's not the part that people lean into or see. So we kind of see two things there. We had, we had a... Um, a family come in. It was a, a family of a professional. Um, he was a cardio surgeon. She was a lawyer. So they were, they were there for professional development, but they thought we'll bring our family on along as well, because, you know, the whole family is a system. And so we may as well just immerse ourselves completely in this. And the family was under so much stress as so many, um, you know, families of wealth, um, families of privilege, um, you know, that really there's so much now in the education system that pushes, you know, kids to be super stressed. And I mean, everybody was stressed out. And, and, and because of the stress, the family really was in a sense of, you know, we're in so much trouble and we don't see each other and we don't really like each other. And, and, and in point of fact, um, the horse's impression of these people when they came in was completely the opposite. Um, they started to lay down. They started to become very kind of um, just very entwined in the family. And, you know, the horses are free so they can choose to do whatever they want. And, and when the family saw this, it broke a trance, a story that they had been telling themselves about who they were as a family that may have been true in one moment, right? Or one month or one year, but certainly wasn't true in this moment. And if it's not true in this moment, then why carry the legacy, right? Why carry the story? And there were lots of tears and, you know, so that's just one example. There's thousands of examples. Um, we had one person come in who, you know, kind of had this facade of, of great um, sort of strength and, and confidence and clarity. 
um, <laughs> and the horses went nuts in the arena, like really kind of frantic, sort of really sort of stressed and running around and, and very disjointed and not very together. And, and so instantly the question is, you know, what's really going on underneath that facade of great sort of confidence, which was mm. a lot of chaos and was important to, to name uh, not in a shame way, not in a, like, this is wrong. There's nothing wrong about chaos, but just, it's just truthful. And, and when there was truthfulness applied to that chaos, well, then vulnerability could show up. And mm -hmm. as soon as that vulnerability came, and often men especially are not, a, they don't feel like they're allowed to be vulnerable. Um, and, and yet the horses then suddenly shifted and revealed the strength in that vulnerability and the power, mm -hmm. the deep, deep power that this guy was carrying confidence as he thought it was. It was such a disconfirming experience for him to see that vulnerability, in fact, was the doorway to his real seat of power. So that's, you know, that's an example too. What, what I like about what you're sharing is you're getting the experience of watching, I don't know how many how many people you've worked with over the years, but again and again and again, you're seeing in real time people show up with these horses and get in the moment feedback. And then there's a shift, mm. you know, and I think there's something about that that's incredibly powerful. And, and what I like about what you're saying is that often there's this shift from uh, one way of being or this facade and then something drops away and then there's a real, there's the real self or the real connection or presence that comes through. Mm -hmm. So I just noticed there's certain trends to what you're saying. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I believe that's transformative coaching, right? That's, that's where when, pre when true presence is applied, then there's a, there's a total game change in terms of where the conversation and the learning can happen. So um, mm. I have a question because a lot of people listening, a lot of the coaches listening, um, they don't, you know, have horses around. Maybe they have other animals they can bring in. <laughs> so, so I wonder if there are transferable kind of lessons or um, ways of working in this way that, that, you know, maybe, maybe you work with some clients who don't, actually get to meet the horses first yes. and and yet you you're able to work in similar ways yeah that's such a great question joel i, I love that because it's something i don't get to talk about often um so you know obviously it's not about the horse you know the horse is just just happens to be a medium of something that's m much truer and available anywhere and everywhere um so there's a few answers to that question the first is a lot of coaches have come to us with their clients so that they could engage in that process with their clients and, you know, and, and then use that experience to then leverage their continuing work with their clients. So that's one way. But um, the other is that um, it, this is really about accessing nature. There's a wonderful book called The Last Child in the Woods. Uh, Richard Louvre, I believe is his name, mm. which I um, stumbled in when I published Kindred. Um, and it's about the, the um, neurobiological um, possibilities um, that happen when we're in nature. And um, horses make it easy because they're so relatable and they relate and they are big and they, you know, people can really pay attention to what they're doing, but really this work can happen with a tree. It can happen um, by spending time in nature. And, and the reason for this is because nature's nature vibrates at a frequency that is in alignment with the whole. Um, and so everything has a sort of electromagnetic field around it. This is why forest bathing um, in Japan's become such a thing. Um, what's so, that? Um, so what, what's forest bathing? Yeah. 
Forest bathing is uh, oh, oh horse bathing yeah the forest right and there's a word for it and I forget it's left my brain but um, it's um, you just spend time in the forest not like hiking or working out out but actually spending time in the forest so um, and it's funny Uncle Bob used to tell me stories of how people would come to him for great teachings and he would just send them to go and sit under a tree for days which would annoy the hell out of them but um, but something would happen afterwards. So, so taking time to um, encourage people to spend time in nature or even using nature in some way so that you're, you're not just in, you know, engaging with a client talking, but you're, you're actually accessing a field, you know, uh, a, a kind of quantum field that is shifting the neurobiology of your clients and you while you're, while you're in that. Um, it's much more subtle, of course, but if you just drop in and trust it, um, it's totally there. We had a, we had a big group, um, a big group of um, mortgage bankers, 40 people, which was enormous. And we weren't quite sure how we were going to sort of, you know, parcel everything out. And finally we, we put part of some of them with the horses and then some of them we took into the forest and, asked them to go solo in the forest for 30 minutes. Um, And there was, you know, some different questions that we had them. And they came back with so many insights. And those those who had really let themselves trust the presence of the trees and the rocks came back with something that was totally theirs and... um, yeah, it w- indicated a real shift. So I would just encourage other coaches to, um, first of all, experience for themselves, first and foremost, how being in nature taps them into their own true nature, right? And, um, and then, and there's, t- there's so much out there now in terms of um, some of the research done as to why the natural world shifts and alters our brain space um, and our neuro and our neurobiology. Um, so just to kind of be au fait with that is also useful because, you know, clients can be very skeptical and why are you sending me, you know, why are we sitting under this tree? <laughs> and so it's useful to have some of the science in your back pocket, but mm. um, yeah. So that's what I would suggest. It's funny, I, I, that's also for me one of the fastest ways to get into a state of awe, I would say. When I, so I like this term forest bathing. I didn't know what that was, but um, I, I just go walking in the woods and let, letting go, walking around and letting something soak inside of me. And it just creates a kind of uh, state of awe and wonder and, um, and deep contentment too. So yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And so you can see from your own experience, you know, if, if you are positioned in that way, your, your heart, your mind, your body is sort of positioned in that way of openness and on wonder, think what kind of perspective then, um, if, if you were a coach or you were a client who, who were, you were in that experience, then with good questions and deep inquiry, what kinds of perspectives you would have, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I coach a lot of executives myself. And one of the things that I find increasingly this important to do is to shift them out of the state that they're in because they're busy, they're feeling pressure, they're in a kind of activated state, their nervous systems are maybe putting cortisol in their bodies and and so, you know, if we just start the coaching conversation from that place, you can really feel it. It's got a speed to it and in some ways uh, often a superficiality. So I, I often have to get people to slow down and, and come into more presence. And I feel that then from there, they can start to have completely different sort of thoughts and perspectives. That really resonates with what you're saying. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that 
you know, what you'll find if you start to engage with nature as, you know, uh, and, and I think it's in psychology, we talk about as the third thing, right? So a song can be a third thing or a poem or a painting or whatever it can be a third thing, um, which creates so much le leverage in a coaching environment. And if you use nature as a third thing, um, it, it sort of, it does, it does all the heavy lifting. It just does all the heavy lifting because, you know, you're, you're having a conversation with your client and, and all this stuff is happening underneath that you didn't have to work hard to get to. Um, so that's, I think that's one of the things. And, and, and I think the key too is to uh, really respect the uh, platform that, if we call it that, that you're accessing because there's so much, there's so much um, defensiveness around in in the in the in the mental constructs of a client's mind around spending time in nature. It's almost like too gooey or too woo woo or too, and and it's not that. Um, it's quite the opposite. So. Um, so really, you know, getting the clients on board with understanding the dignity um, that this platform deserves is is also part of it as well. Um, I'd love to ask you here about, uh, you, you know, you wrote this article, um, A New Age of Corporate Enlightenment, and I think it can weave together some of the things we've been talking about, you know, that we have all these things going on in the world you know these, these crises and, and events around the world and I've been saying to people it's like we're in a leadership dojo at the moment and so I'm curious what you feel about that and, and the changing nature of leadership and what leaders are being invited now to really embody yeah, just um, to give a little bit of a, a background story, too, which was also in the piece. Growing up, I was a sort of staunch environmentalist. And um, in Australia, you, you were called a greenie. That was a political party. Um, I just, you know, as a, a young activist, just wanted to chain myself to trees. And, you know, just I was very kind of radical and... Mm. And, um, and really had this polarity in my mind about the corporate sector and, you know, C-suite executives and, you know, so-called leaders. And, um, and that made a, an about face when I read this book by Ari DeGhost called uh, The Living Company. And I'm not sure how I stumbled upon it or why I was even open to reading it. I, somewhere, somewhere uh, I began to um, sort of, I think question everything around, around anytime there's a polarity and a rigidity, rigidity in my own mind. Um, so, you know, and Ari, <clears throat> he was the uh, CEO of Shell Oil. And, and he realized that organizations are made of people. So just like, just like people are made of molecules and cells, which are all living things, and then that makes us a living thing. Well, organizations are made of people. And so therefore organizations are living things, but we treat them like um, inanimate objects. And if we treat organizations and the people in them like an organism, like a living being, well, then what does a living being need to evolve so that it can be, it can be a force for good rather than a force for um, separation and for you know, all the terrible things that are happening out there. And this very much intrigued me. Um, so again, the question was, well, what conditions need to be in place for these companies, these organizations, and the people who lead them um, to bring out the humanity in their organizations and, and bring out um, that capacity to, to, to be a force for good? And so what we're seeing now, and I'm sure, Joel, you would, you would echo the same thing, that these companies have also started to surf to the end of their own internet. Um, the Standard & Poor's life expectancy for an organization now, I think, is, is 16 years, whereas in 1955, uh, I think 81 years, I can't, I'm, I'm misquoting now, but 
the life expectancy of a company now is much, much less. And leaders inside them are starting to um, kind of hit the wall as well. They've, they've done everything like they were supposed to do. They went to, you know, they went to an Ivy League school. They, they worked themselves up the ranks. And yet they're not happy they don't feel like there's much meaning in their lives. This is what we're hearing from, from many of them. The, the highest rate of suicide um, is now amongst the privileged white male who's made it up the ranks. And so there's a kind of natural, there's a natural process happening where people are being stopped in their tracks and saying, there's got to be a different way to do this. I, there's got to be a different way of waking up every morning. There has to be a different way to lead. There has to be a different way to uh, create meaning in the workplace. And so, which is to me very exciting. And my hope is that the tsunami of awakening that seems to be happening in the corporate sector can outweigh the tsunami of um, problems that are being created um, and that are happening in the world that, you know, we'll, we, do, we have to wait and see what's going to happen there. But to me, that's the most exciting place to be a coach that because you're really at this, you're really at the front forefront at where humanity, humanity has taken itself. Mm-hmm. And, um, and because also the influence these leaders wield that when you touch their life, they touch you know, literally hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Um, so that's, that's very, very exciting. And are you seeing that? Are you seeing, you know, you said there's a tsunami of awakening in, in um, these corporations. Is that something you're seeing with all these leaders that, that you work with, that people are becoming passionate about different things or asking different questions? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just for example, right, Boeing hired David White, the poet, uh, to come and, and be uh, a, an integral part of their leadership team. Harley Davidson hired Peter Senge to come in and, and do work around presence, you know, and, and, and the word presence is starting to make, it, make itself known inside the, the lexicon of the corporate culture. So we're just starting to see emerge um, these, these sensibilities that were, previously completely unheard of in the corporate sector. Poetry, coming to horses, being in nature, being in meditation. We had one gentleman who was a Japanese gentleman, just uh, purchased a tech firm here in America. And, um, you know, he ended up in the arena with the horses, with his top team. And, um, you know, these moments where... Uh, there's so much bad news out there about corruption and violence and, you know, all these things happening. But boy, these moments that show up in the arena where I, where I really see the real heart of humanity peeking through the corporate sector. So this gentleman, you know, he's in front of his direct reports. First time he's been with them. And he's putting himself in a position, you know, a small man with a, a giant horse and, and, and it's horses, right? And he's put himself in this position. So that just that in and of itself is, is amazing. He didn't put his team in, under floral lights in front of a PowerPoint. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, um, there was one exercise where, he, where the horses had halters on and he had to sort of inspire the horse to come along with him. And he just put the rope over his shoulder and sort of drug the horse down the, down the line and um, to you know, much to the kind of um, uh, dismay of his colleagues who were watching him drag this horse around the arena, and um, and after some time and some work and some questions and some dialogue, you know, he he said, "This is how I've led people my whole life. You know, I've only asked for them to be obedient, and I never understood that there was a way to inspire for real." real loyalty and real side-by-side companionship. So he was able to like change that. But the fact that he was able to own and say, you know, this is what I've done. This is how I've always done it. And this doesn't work. And I'm going to learn a new way. That to me is amazing. You know, it was a $12.3 billion company. 
and you know, at the head of that company is a man saying, wow, look at how I need to learn how to do it differently. Mm-hmm. What qualities do you think then you see leaders wanting to embody more? Like you said, um, you know, presence is something we've talked about. Do you see like there's certain qualities that people are really emphasizing or valuing more these days? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wisdom. Um, and, um, sort of intrinsic knowing, um, intuition. Um, let me see what else are they wanting? Sort of grounded presence. They're starting to think too about, you know, what does it mean to have, uh, to project a field around you that, so these are words they're using, right? Mm-hmm. Field. So, and how do I project a field around me that inspires others to be their best selves? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, groundedness, um, a kind of inner confidence that comes from not being afraid to fail. Vulnerability mm-hmm. is another word that's showing up. Um, especially among male leaders. I remember uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago and, um, you know, my, me and my friends, or my coaching friends as well, we were all into, um, you know, consciousness, spirituality, conscious business. And yes, it, yes. It, felt, it felt like something that was in the future. You know, it felt like, oh, we love this stuff. We were so passionate about it. And, and yet we're a small group of people and nobody else really cares. And, right. and, and in that space of time, things have really changed. You know, it feels like that future is here now. There's rarely a coaching client that I meet these days that isn't interested in some kind of uh, presence practice or mindfulness. And, or, you know, maybe they're, they have a secret spiritual practice, but often these days it's not even secret anymore. And, And I think what, you know, there's been a confluence too of um, science and spirituality so that these concepts of, you know, projecting a field are actually not, um, you know, they're not fluffy. They're actually grounded in some very rigorous science. So that's helping us as well. Um, And you're right. I mean, it it did seem like back then that, you know, this was sort of, you know, it was just a very few of us with this idea. And, and I tell you, this is my sense of coaching in its most rarefied form is, I don't know if you've, you know, um, much in Buddhism and I don't know very much at all. So for those Buddhists out there, please, I apologize in advance for anything, any uh, misstep I make. Um, But apparently the name of the next Buddha who is to come is Maitreya. And, translated loosely, Maitreya means the friend. So I wonder if it's not a person that is supposed to be coming, but a phenomenon. And if that phenomenon isn't what we're seeing in coaching. Because if you think about it, our job is to be that friend, that, that companion that holds both the world and the spirit in, one, in two hands and brings them together. It has to be that way. We can't, we can't live divided anymore as if there's like spirituality and everything else. That in and of itself is a problem. It splits us into places that as we live fragmented in that way, then we have like our spiritual life and our spiritual practice. But if, if I'm not being wholly present with you in this moment, who am I bringing to the table? And so this moment is my spiritual practice, right? This is, this is it right here. This is all I have is this moment with you. And um, I think we're starting to see the end of, okay, I sit between, you know, 7 and 7.30 in the morning, and then I just live my life completely unconsciously for the whole rest of the day. Um, now it's about living moment to moment in the moment, um, and as coaches, this is our kind of our dharma, right? Um, mm. 
And so I'm just, I'm curious about that. If we aren't seeing mm -hmm. the dawn of a time where this friendship is, is what coaching really is. Mm -hmm. I think that more and more people are, are starting to live into this desire to self-actualize mm -hmm. um, in whatever work they do, but also in coaching. And for me, that's, that's is really where this division between, you know, my, my work being a job and it being something that's really a deep expression of my uniqueness and my offering here, that division begins to dissolve. And so then my work becomes a, a calling and it becomes um, a deep expression. And um, it invites me into, I think, a different relationship with with life and with people around me, you know, it's, it's no longer just about making money about getting things for myself, but it's this, this dimension of serving and also um, a consciousness bigger than my, just myself, like a, a shared, a shared well-being or a shared consciousness. And so um, I, I, some people might find this grandiose but i do believe that coaching and the consciousness that coaching represents is a powerful one of the powerful kind of forces that can help us move through these times you know and there are so many different types of coaching as well so uh, the leader as the coach um i think you know and it's it's a different paradigm i think that we're moving into so mm -hmm. that's what comes up yeah. And, um, oh gosh, so much is coming in that I want to share. So we're seeing that for people to have the, the possibility to see their role in their organizations as sacred. So for example, one, one of my clients is, um, she works for a healthcare organization and she, you know, she's, She's not quite come out of the closet yet in terms of her, like who she, all her sort of spiritual weightiness. She's really, she's really a profoundly deep person. She has a deep inner life, but was getting like 5% of the pie chart and, and not much airtime. And over time of our working together, you know, she started, all those barriers started to fall away where she realized that Every moment of her day as she walked into the office, every, every moment was that moment to be, to be that person in, in that seat of, of deep confidence of who she really is. And, and it's changed the culture of her, of her department because her language now is a little bit different. And, um, and she, you know, she, uh, says things in meetings like I'm going to pause for a moment and just go in and be quiet before I respond because I can feel that um, what we're talking about right now has a lot of, of different um, emotional states for me. And I want to make sure that I really respond out of clarity and she will pause and she will take two minutes in the meeting and close her eyes. <laughs> mm. And she's normalizing something that previously was just never seen or heard of. And it gives other people permission to be that way as well. Um, and so now she's creating circles inside her department that meet every other week, uh, sit in circle, uh, share their realness together. Um, they start by meditating for a few minutes before, like that kind of thing. And so people are starting to feel like they don't have to leave the corporate environment to live their true selves. They can live their true selves in the corporate environment and infuse the corporate environment with that way of being. Does that make sense? Uh, oh, totally. It does. And I, I, that's what I love about evolution in a sense. It's like, you know, organizations themselves have to change because people are, like you said, people suddenly they care about meaning, you know, they're, they're, they're in these organizations where they're, they're struggling to connect to like the meaning in the work they do. Mm -hmm. So the organizations have to change, but also the, the, the people are changing, you know, mm -hmm. so, so the organizations are changing. And I think of when communism fell in Europe and how 
that happened in three different countries in the space of 48 hours or something, you know, like it was not a, an organized effort. It suddenly there was this <laughs> massive amount of change and disruption that happened over a very short space of time that caught the powers in charge completely unaware. And so I think you hit on something really important. It's like, it's time for people to really be able to show up yeah. um, as this true self, you know, in whatever way that, uh, whatever that evokes for you. It's like, you know, we've often felt like, like, I can't really be that. It's like, I'll live a short distance from it. In moments in my life, I'll, I'll fully own it. But, you know, I couldn't show up in my work or as a leader fully embodying that. But what, what happens when you do? What happens when you aren't prepared to compromise anymore? And yeah. you say yes to that thing. And it's scary and it's vulnerable. And then you suddenly find out, holy shit, like this is um, a fountain of, of aliveness and inspiration and leadership wisdom. So, Absolutely. And, you know, even, you know, even that moment where you said, you know, this could sound grandiose, right? <laughs> yeah, there you go. You see, you right? catch me. That's what I'm doing there. Yeah. 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 And, and so, <laughs> you know, just, to, and I, I get it. Like, I get it. It's, a, it, it's, it's. It's so easy to fall into that that mindset of that you know being um, living and working in the in a in a way that that creates presence and beauty and and sacredness is somehow grandiose rather than just true. <laughs> you know? mm. It's just so. So I think we um, we do each other a lot of favors by reminding one another that it's it's just it's just deeply true. Period. I, I wrote a blog called um, "Stop Saying Woo Woo and Kumbaya" mm -hmm. um, because it's a it's such a, a a derogatory way to talk about. Um, things that are um, hard to describe. And so even inside our own, you know, amongst our own peers, even amongst all of us who are, um, you know, who are, who talk this language, who speak this way, who live in this way that you and I are speaking, you'll find we'll say things like, well, that, you know, it's not woo woo or whatever. And, um, and it's a very derogatory term and it, and it subtly puts down just what's true. It's just true. <laughs> and um, so I'm, I'm, I look forward to the time where we don't differentiate by words that would separate, like um, even the word spirituality. <laughs> I'd, um, I'd love to ask you a question that um, was, was there a shift that you went through that allowed your coaching genius i don't know what the word is i want to use but like your like your powerful coaching to come online was there a shift that you made in your life that where suddenly things clicked wow i love that question you're such a great coach because you ask such great questions <laughs> i love that question um i'll have to think about that um You know, I think part of it was um, just permission to be me. Um, it wasn't like a skill was developed. It, it was kind of almost almost slightly opposite. It was um, a point where, and I have to think about when, when that point came, um, a point where I realized it wasn't so much skill that skill kind of like, you know, that's sort of the decorate ornaments on the Christmas tree, but, but really I could just be myself and, um, and that who I was, was totally just awesome, cool, fine. Um, and, and that's when it all kind of um, sort of came through. And I, I must say that I spent a long time sort of cloaking my, my coaching with little facades, like even making Kindred magazine was this like gigantic facade. So I didn't have to show up just as me, right? I just put a whole magazine in front of me and all the authors in the magazine and all the amazing people 
that were in the magazine in front of me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that was fine. That was part of my evolution. Um, and so, and teaching, you know, coaching people to ride horses. And it was all kind of a way of putting everything in front of me. Um, and I think it just sort of came in a really simple moment uh, where it was a really simple moment where somebody said they needed some help with something and I just knew I could help them. And that, that, that knowing I could help them wasn't grandiose, wasn't putting myself above um, or better than or knowing any more than they did. I just knew in my body I could help them. I just love the, your answer to that. And actually, it makes me think of Coaches Rising, you know, because that's what I've done and what we've done. You know, we've, we've created a platform for for really, um, you know, amazing people to, to share them with the coaching community. And, um, and I love doing that. And I still love doing that. But I've also noticed in me, I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, it's like, I know I, there's stuff I want to share. There's yeah. stuff that I know. And it's, yeah. it's like an easy thing to put, to say, hey, you have the stage. And so that's what I'm feeling the calling to do more of. And so here's the deal. Then when you have the platform that shares other people's greatness, it becomes even more clean, right? Because there in no way is it being used to hide, right? Mm. Even if it's just the smallest way that you could get distracted by lifting other people up and not leaning into your calling. Now that liberates coaches rising even more. So yeah. it's just, that's awesome. I love that. And I'm, I'm curious too, um, because I'm, I am seeing <clears throat> a sort of distinct line between what sort of conventional coaching um, and this more transformative coaching. And, mm. and I'm wondering if you're seeing it as a evolution or a, um, a parting of roads, do you know, like, or yeah, is, good question. Yeah. Well, maybe you could say what you think transformational coaching is. I think, the, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, um, is not the, the, the word coaching as a verb, but who the coach is and um, really who they are. So where, from where are they abiding? What, where, what kind of... Um, space are they holding not just in the on the session with clients but in their life where where's their alignment what are they serving and you talked about tapping into a greater consciousness so mm. so i feel too a similarity of i'm, I'm tapping into something and sort of midwifing something that is has nothing to do with me at all and um, and even in a way has nothing to do with the client. It yeah. has to do with their expression, their own unique expression, but they too are in that slipstream of something larger, whatever that is, whatever we call that. Um, and so the act of being a coach in this way is not only a service um, to something larger, which also includes making a living and all that other stuff, but it's also calls me to, for, to continue to push to be the person I know I can be, to, to never fall asleep, to stay awake to my own calling and to stay awake to my own authenticity and to um, deepen whatever practices or ways of being every day so that I can be more and more mindful. Like the, these are things that come to mind. So first and foremost is, is the coach themselves. And then that way of being so in alignment and, and um, present to the moment that, yeah. yeah, something else can show up. So it's not yeah. a synthetic conversation at all. Yeah. Yeah. You really described that very eloquently for me. Um, that's, uh, that to me is what I, I would say is the fundamental 
fundamental importance is where does the coach come from and that we've done this deep work and that I'm, I'm, my consciousness is my greatest asset as a coach. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about deploying a certain technique or uh, methodology and imposing that on how things should go, where we should end up. But it's actually about learning to um, tune into and follow the unfolding of this relationship and this, this, this person in front of me. And from there, there, there is like um, their new way of being and my new way of being is formed from, from that presence and unfolding and creativity. Mm-hmm. And I see, um, I see this happening all around the world now is that it, it's really a theme for me. Like in all these different communities I'm connected to and I'm hearing it in your story, it's like people are waking into a different paradigm, which is that mm-hmm. presence first. It's about living and leading and relating from this moment right here, right now. Um, not kind of um, being caught in a conceptualized, dualistic kind of relationship to to life, and you know, but it it can include thinking and concepts and everything. That's not to be excluded, but it's it's a shift into an, an immediacy and an unfoldingness uh, where the real aliveness is. You know, in, in my coaching conversations, when we're in that place, you can feel it. It's palpable, and that's when my clients have their biggest insights or they connect to that truth, which you see it shining in their eyes. And um, if you are just seeing your client through a model or a methodology and, you know, you can cut yourself off from that. So I'm hearing that everywhere. That's my long answer to your question is I'm hearing that everywhere. People are interested in that now and from coaches to the leaders I work with. So uh, I think it's the, I think it's the field evolving we have to evolve as a field of coaches. We have to, because so much disruption is on the horizon that um, we have to keep doing this deep work. And it's, it's less and less about information because all the information is out there. It's more and more about our way of being and our presence. Yeah. See, so you were that you're being a horse for your clients. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's nice. That's nice. Well, you've just yeah. the work perfectly. That's exactly it. I think right. another element too is um, I'll bring in the word vulnerability because I yeah. realize when I'm with um, because I'm sort of in service to the moment, and it's really as it's emerging in the moment. There's like this incredible vulnerability of. I have no idea where all this is going to go for the next hour. You know, right. I have no idea like how, what words are I going to coming out of my mouth. And, and I too share many of the conundrums and dilemmas that my clients share. Um, it, it's, it's so not about having, having any kind of answers. It's so, yeah, it's just completely, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, while I feel very kind of grounded in that space, I also feel very vulnerable in that space. And, well, I... um, and, and it pushes me so much, as you said, to just keep evolving. Uh, just recently I stumbled upon this gentleman. He's a comedian here named Kyle Cease. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool guy. And uh, he, you know, I mean, I've sat with so many spiritual teachers and what do you know, a comedian's the guy who gets me really inspired about um, meditating. And, um, and I, I used to meditate like, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 minutes a day, not very much. Um, And now I'm like doing it for between half an hour and an hour every day. And you know what? It is amazing. It's just amazing how, how it's shifting things for me. And, um, and so now I get to like, you know, some of my clients were way better meditators than I was, <laughs> but just uh, getting another level of, um, you know, that which I am is not all the mental this and that's that 
goes across my brain every day, all day. Um, and, and just getting a better, even deeper perspective on that has been really helpful. Yeah. Just, um, I see the time and we have to bring things to a close pretty soon. I just want to reflect on what you said there because, um, a couple of things that stand out for me. Um, well, one is like, I've been a long-term meditator and I, I could not agree with you more and, and just say, like when I started, it took me a while, but once I started to see the results of my meditation practice, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at two years in, five years now, it's been nearly 15 years in. It's like, oh, okay, right. This is interesting. Like my whole perspective, my whole sense of what I am is shifting in a fundamental way, which changes everything and, and um, completely changes my, the experience of my nervous system begins to be regulated in a different ways. So, so um, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, this is meditation is one of those practices that sets us up for what you just said before so well is that it isn't about knowing the answers. It's about cultivating that capacity in our coaching to be in that dance of the unknown in the session and to be grounded in that and say, I say this to my clients now. I'm like, I don't know where we're going to go today. Right. No, like I don't, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm committed that mm-hmm. something powerful can happen if we both let go of where this should go mm-hmm. and connect to <laughs> what's most important right here, right now mm-hmm. and follow that thread, you know? So that's the, it becomes about following that unfolding thread. Um, but you're right. You know, it is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to say, I don't know where we're going to go and I don't know the answer. And, and um, I'm revealing my cards on that one. And, you know, uh, just really quickly, it just has dawned on me to circle back to your question a long time ago about coaches, you know, who don't have animals or horses or, you know, even much nature around them. And I teased you and said, see, you're being a horse, but actually I was quite serious Um, you know, really that's the answer is, is that for me, the horses make it super easy, but really it's about stepping into that presence, that deep, deep presence that is at one with something greater, that that is the true nature that helps people tap into their true nature. And if you just understand that you are projecting a field with your nervous system, that you are like being a horse <laughs> right. you are doing that and know that that field does have influences and does shift your client's um, state. Yeah. yeah. I feel good right now. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm noticing my, my um, energy and my presence feels, uh, you know, very uplifted and um, um, inspired by a conversation. I, I just want to thank you um, so much for, for, sharing yourself today and we've been in a lot of very interesting spaces so yeah thank you Joel it's been absolutely a delight and you feel like a brother and I'm so happy to know you Mm. and to know your listeners through you and um yes onward (laughs) (laughs) where can we find out more about your work uh the website is uh equissantafe.com or equisinspired.com and Equus is spelled E-Q-U-U-S. It's Latin for horse. So, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, go well, yeah? Thank Be well. You. Thank you, Joel. Hello. It's Joel here again. Just a quick one to say, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. Uh, I've been speaking to experts and thought leaders and master coaches on what does it take to be an extraordinary coach. You'll find those there and we'll be adding more to those in the coming weeks and months.